Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Have you heard that before? Have you heard the phrase, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. It sounds like a good, it's uh, like it's a pithy phrase, it's a provocative phrase, it sounds like a healthy corrective to a perspective of Christianity that says it's all about rules, it's all about doing the right thing, it's all about not doing the wrong thing, it's all about being good. People probably say Christianity is not a religion out of a well-intended desire to rescue the reputation of Christianity from this overly rigid, legalistic, dutiful kind of approach to the faith. And people probably say it's a relationship out of a well-intended desire to welcome especially maybe the new believer who isn't as familiar with Scripture, doesn't know the teachings of Jesus, to make Christianity accessible, right? It's a relationship. Anybody can join a relationship. To emphasize this and, and maybe highlight the beautiful truth that's revealed throughout Scripture, that God wants to be known, God wants you to know him, and he wants to know you. He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He called Moses his friend. Constantly throughout Scripture, over and over again, we hear the heartbeat of God being expressed with this phrase, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's what we refer to, we refer to as the covenant. That's the promise. And ultimately, God comes to earth as a man named Jesus in order to make a way for us to be in relationship with God, with our Creator. So I think that's why some people insist Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a relationship. And to a large degree, and I want to be sure to communicate this, to a large degree I appreciate the good intentions behind that unfortunate phrase. And I do think it's an unfortunate phrase in the end. And here's why Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, is, is an unfortunate phrase. There's two reasons. First, it's, it's just not, it's not true. Christianity is a religion. It's one of the major religions, like with Islam and, and Judaism and Christianity. Those are the three major world religions. Christianity is the biggest world religion. It's the most practiced world religion. Two billion followers of Christianity. It's different definitions of religion, of course, but essentially it's a set of beliefs about God or God's. Uh, another popular definition of religion is a system of worship and practices. So to be even close to accurate, you'd have to accept that Christianity is, in fact, a religion. Christianity includes many core beliefs. They're articulated most succinctly in the creeds, like the Apostles' Creed. And these beliefs lead to specific practices or ways of worship or ways of living, such as caring for widows and orphans. These are practices rooted in the beliefs. Let me say again that I appreciate much of what people intend to say when they say Christianity is not a religion, it is a relationship. In fact, I had a great conversation with somebody this, this, just this last week in their home. Um, it, it was ironic because I had just written this introduction to the sermon, but this person was telling me how they were 
introduced to Jesus by someone who essentially said that very phrase. And that was such a helpful phrase to them because their association with Christianity had been this very works-oriented, don't touch the wrong thing, do the right thing in the right way, otherwise you're not going to be allowed in kind of approach. So this invitation or this acknowledgement that there was a relational element to Christianity was the good news that this person responded to. So I'm not trying to... um, to be inappropriately um, discouraging or critical, but I am trying to help us see what Melissa's already kind of brought to our attention in the call to worship. Christianity, not a religion, is a relationship. Fundamentally, actually, Christianity is a religion. The second reason I think that that phrase Christianity is not a religion or not a yeah, not a religion, it's a relationship is unfortunate is because it assumes a false premise. It assu- it's bu- the statement is built on the assumption that religion and relationship are in conflict. That they're by definition in opposition to one another, that you can't have one unless you ditch the other or vice versa. That relationships somehow don't include rules. Or that relationships are good, but rules or structure is inherently bad. Now, if it's all rules, if it's all religion and no relationship, clearly that's bad. Clearly that misses the heartbeat. That misses the intimacy part of what Melissa mentioned. There's no life there at all. But where is their relationship without rules? Can you show me that, please? Where is their relationship without structure? Where is their meaningful relationship without some sense of shared understanding? I would ask this question. How is it possible to have a meaningful and lasting relationship without some set of expectations, without some articulated understanding of this is the way it's going to be that gets pressed into the practical, the really, really practical? In other words, some rules. Where is their meaningful, lasting relationship sans rules? In my marriage with Carmen, we each have specific responsibilities. We each help each other with our own responsibilities. We do what we say we're going to do. And when we don't, we, we work it out. We talk about it in light of the promises we've made to one another and our desire to continue to kind of work things out and, 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 and share in our expectations for our life together. Is our marriage just a set of rules? No, it's not just a set of rules. It's a meaningful relationship that's designed to push us towards wholeness. And because it's a real thing, friends, not some nebulous idea, not some fanciful fairy tale, because it's real, It includes some rules. It includes some guidelines, some expectations, some structures, a form that we embrace in order to support the intimacy of our relationship. Marriages with no shared agreements, no common understanding, no honored rules are relationships that don't last very long. That's what what happens there. There's nothing supporting them. There's no structure fortifying them. Or... Think in terms of a different analogy. Think in terms of sports. There's guidelines, right? There's literally lines drawn on the ground, on the court, on the wood, on the grass. There's a a point system. There's some way that you score or demonstrate that you have that you've been victorious over over uh, you know an opponent. There's uh, instruments of the game. There's balls or bats or rackets or cleats or whatever. 
These are what make the sport possible. This is the container in which the game happens. It happens on the field, on the court, in the pool, whatever. It's not about the rules, but the rules are what enable the game to happen. I had a friend when I was a little boy who was very hard to play with because he was always changing the rules. So we would start the day really great. We'd say, let's play cops and robbers or let's play hide and go seek, right? And then we do, you, like you do at the beginning of every game, you kind of set out basic understandings. We tend to call those rules, most of us cringe about that rule, but that's assen- or about that word, but that's essentially what it is. Okay, you can't jump over the fence and it has to be on this side of the house and the big tree is base and you have to count to 50 with your eyes closed before you start. Ready, go. And then you're off and you're playing the game. These are just the basic agreed-upon rules that would enable the game to happen, and this is what we would do at the beginning, and then he would change the rules. Like, almost every time, he would just change the rules. Now the tree wasn't base. Oh, how convenient for him. Now it's the rock, right? Or, or, or I would tag him. And, but no, it didn't count because he had a force field. Nobody said anything about force fields at the beginning of that game. But he, would, he had a great imagination, So he was a delightful person to hang out with, but not a fun person to play with, and frankly, kind of a hard person to be in relationship with because you just never really knew what you got. You know, you never really knew what was coming, didn't really know the the agreed upon rules or the just the understanding of what this is gonna be about, how things are supposed to work. Now, if you know me at all, you know that I am not a rules guy. I actually feel like no trespassing signs are inviting. I mean, I just don't like rules. I don't like making decisions based on rules. I like making decisions based on purpose and relationship. That's my filter. But here's what I'm learning. Religion and relationship are not in conflict, okay? They're actually not mutually exclusive. Religion is the structure. Religion is the beliefs. Religion is the practices that support a meaningful relationship with God. And not only that, not only does religion support relationship with God that is real, but religion or the structure or the rules or the practices or whatever word you want to put on it can also reveal the heart of the God of that religion. Do you follow me there? The rules situated around the certain religion reveal the heart of the God of that religion. Crazy example I just thought of is if uh, one of the rules is you can't eat cows, well, it's because that, re- that reveals something about the, about the God of that religion, right? Something about the belief of that religion. For Christianity, an example would be in James Religion, he, James writes that religion that God accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after widows in their distress and to keep oneself from becoming polluted by the world. So here we have some structure, and it reveals what's important to the God of this religion called Christianity. Now, the structure and the rules that support relationship with, God of, with the God of the Bible the structures, as well as the beliefs and the practices that reveal the heart of the God of the Bible, they're commonly called the Ten Commandments. Have you heard of the Ten Commandments? Yeah. It's interesting that they're referred to almost universally as the Ten Commandments, and here's why I say that's interesting. By the way, I meant to tell you this. It's listed, the Ten Commandments are listed in two places in the Bible. I'm going to be looking at the Exodus 20 account. 
And we'll put them on the screen, but not in their entirety. So if you have a Bible, you might want to turn to Exodus 20. Genesis, Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, real close to the start. Even though they are called the Ten Commandments, it's an interesting label for this section of Scripture. Because of this, the word for command in Hebrew is the word savah, and it's all over the Old Testament. More than 400 times the word savah, commandment, shows up in the Old Testament. One of those times is not Exodus 20. That's weird. The word in Exodus 20 is dabar, which means to speak or declare or to converse with another So if you dig deep into the origin of this word debar, you learn that it's based on this idea of setting things in a row, of organizing things in in, in, in a set sequence. And the first places that this word debar shows up in the history of humanity is in reference to a shepherd leading his sheep in a line, showing them the way to good pasture. Isn't this fascinating? This is like the etymology of this word, the beginning of this word. I hear the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments, and I imagine this old man who used to yell, get off my land, when me and my friends would ride our horses across his his, uh, field to get to the river in 1986. It was like, open the gate, close the gate, get off my land. I mean, it was just, oh, it was like like a cue right? That's what the Ten Commandments sort of sounds like to me. But that is not the picture we're given here. The image we're given is the image of a shepherd leading his flock to pasture saying, this is the way of life. That's the image we're given. This is the way of life. Let me put things in order. Let me line things up. Let me point the way. Listen to my words and follow me. Here's a question. Do you know when God gave the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel? Do you, have a, do you have any kind of concept as to the order in the story where the Ten Commandments are given? Some of you? Okay, it's, it is right after the Exodus. It is right after God frees the people of Israel from slavery. It's literally three months after they're freed from slavery in Egypt, where they have been the forced labor of the largest nation in the world for over 400 years. So we're talking hard, multi-generational slavery, more than 10 generations deep, complete oppression. It's all they've ever known. It's all their parents have ever known. It's all their grandparents have ever known. It's all their great-grandparents have ever known. Ten generations, they have been human tools for the Egyptian nation. And sure, maybe they've heard these weird fairy tales of some distant God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. But any kind of real encounter with that God or sense or hope that that God would rescue them from slavery, that's faded a long, long time ago, years ago. And then apparently out of nowhere, this dude named Moses shows up, and through a series of crazy events, God uses Moses to set free over one million slaves in one day after 400 years of slavery. 
And it's known as the Exodus. That event is known as the Exodus. It is the central event of the Old Testament. It is the main event of the Old Testament. But as monumental as the Exodus was, the central, or it was not the end of the story. In other words, God's desire is not simply to set them free. God's desire is not simply to save them. His desire is not simply to rescue them from suffering. His, his desire from the beginning was to make them whole. Right? It was to heal them and make them whole. Set my people free, God says through Moses to Pharaoh, so that they may worship me. That's what he says. It's not just about freedom. It's about wholeness. God wants to return his people to the kind of relationship for which they were created, which is a relationship of worship, of intimacy with God. So how does he do that then? So a million people plus escape captivity, they cross into the freedom, and when they're saved from this cruel and oppressive hand of the taskmaster, the story is not over. It's just begun. God wants to set them free, but more than that, he wants to make them whole. What then does he do to show them how to live in wholeness? Well, he gives them a way to live. He gives them a way to live. One of our youth in uh, Wednesday night, they're also talking about the Ten Commandments. She wrote, I understand the Ten Commandments, but I don't understand the context, the bigger picture. This is the bigger picture. Great question, by the way. This is the bigger picture. God gives the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, to show them a way to live. Here's what God says in Exodus uh, 20. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall, not, you shall have no other gods before me. Or it could say besides me. No other gods. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth Beneath or in the waters below, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, which has a negative connotation in our culture, but it means you protect what's yours. Punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love a thousand generations to those who love me and keep my commands. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, neither you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. There's something like 400 words used in the Hebrew up to this point, the first five commands. And then, shifts gears, gets super, super short. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land your Lord, your God, is giving you. That's actually the fifth. Then it gets really short. You shall not murder. In Hebrew, it's not murder. 
That's all it says. Not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Covet means desire. We are people of desire, right? We are creatures of desire, and we are to desire not what is someone else's, but what God gives to us, right? All right, so these are the words that God speaks to the people of Israel, like a father speaking to a son, clearly and directly. This is what you do, here's why, and don't do these things. I'll make that part real short, just so we can be real clear about it, right? This is the kind of talk that you have with a parent that you remember later on in your life because you know that their motivation wasn't punitive, it was to show you the way you needed to live. And they got real clear with you for a minute. They got real direct with you. And so you maybe have a memory of this conversation. It stands out in your mind. Because you know ultimately that this was coming from a place of love, even though it was pretty clearly about the rules. And you know that the desire isn't to bury you in rules and religion. The motivation is to teach you how to live. Rob Elisher is a member of our church, and he shared this with me. He said, the law is simply the terms that God set for a reconciled relationship. Isn't that interesting? The law is simply the terms that God set for a reconciled or a relationship that's put back together. We might say that our obeying the words of God is how we show we want to be in relationship with God. On a real level, on a practical level, on a real level. Rob went on to share, and here he is quoting a guy named Dallas Willard. It is the meeting place of the creator and his creation in covenant relationship. The law of God, the Ten Commandments. It is the meeting place. I love that image. It's the, the place where the creator and the creation meet in covenant relationship. Like, let's come to the table together. Like, hey, we need to have a little marriage talk. Let's, let's sit down and let's review, <laughs> right? I just think it's beautiful. The thing is, it's not the way we typically think of the law of God. It's not the way we typically think of the Ten Commandments in these beautiful ways. And I think that's because the Ten Commandments have a real PR problem in our culture, right? They just have a real... P- and there's, there's a few reasons that come to mind that I'll hit really quickly. The, the first reason I think the Ten Commandments have a PR, a public relations problem, is because we've pulled them from their biblical context. We've pulled them out of the story of salvation. We've separated or divorced them from their intended purpose. Our culture probably most closely associates the Ten Commandments with courthouses where they used to be posted before that became a political lightning rod, right? Because the Ten Commandments were ostensibly the foundation of American civil law, which then makes you associate them with justice or maybe makes you associate them with punishment or maybe makes you associate them with hypocrisy, depending on where you land in this big, wide range of American civil law. 
But the ten words were not given as a moral backbone to American civil justice, right? They were given as guidance for followers of Yahweh freshly freed from generations of slavery. That's the context. That's why they were given. They were given within this context of freedom as part of this larger life-giving movement that God was laying out for his people. Generations later, King David would write this, I love your law. I run in the path of your commands, for they set my heart free. That's amazing. I run in the path of your commands because that's the way of freedom, and I love it. That's what David's saying. Second reason Ten Commandments have a PR problem is that the church is incorrectly taught or implied, friends, listen, that they are obsolete. The Old Testament, according to this way of thinking, is about law, and the New Testament is about love. And the Old Testament is about rules, and the New Testament is about grace. And the Old Testament is Moses, and the New Testament is Jesus, and don't we love Jesus, right? And so this is what we're given, but the idea that the law is obsolete directly contradicts what Jesus himself says about the law. He says, I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. Think about this. Jesus says over and over and over again, follow me, follow me, follow me. And then he goes and he absolutely and completely obeys the Ten Commandments. He's not there to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What does that mean? He shows us how to do it, right? He fulfills them. It's a faulty reading of the Bible that renders the Ten Commandments obsolete. Jesus replaces some things Like animal sacrifice, he dies once and for all for the sins of the whole world. But he fulfills other things. And the law is something that he fulfills. He does not render it obsolete. He fulfills it. And then here's a third reason the Ten Commandments have such bad PR. I think the problem is because Christians have, some Christians have incorrectly taught that the primary purpose of the Ten Commandments is simply to show us how much we mess up, simply to to show us, to create big relief and contrast about how it's so impossible to obey the law of God. We're hopelessly lost without Jesus and how severely we need grace from God. By this logic, the Ten Commandments actually get twisted to become the exact opposite of what they really are. They become twisted into a declaration of death instead of what they actually are, which is a way of life. Now, Jesus fulfills the law. Why? Because we fail to. Okay? Of course, we are lost without Jesus. He is our only hope. We don't trust in our own righteousness or obedience or goodness. We trust in Jesus's. We have broken the law of God. That's why we need forgiveness. But God's primary purpose, primary purpose in giving us the Ten Commandments is to show us how to live. Not to mock human weakness. You follow me there? This is way more than just show me how many times I mess up in a day. Okay. This is, this is God actually intending me to live this way. And saying, here's how you live. This is the way of life. God expects me to obey his words. God is not keeping a scorecard, watching for, oh, he, he broke number eight. He just broke number eight. Did you guys see that? He stole a pencil or whatever. God wants to make us whole. 
And these 10 words are given to point us away from destruction and toward wholeness. That's the point. Destructions that way don't go that way. Go this way. This is the way of wholeness. Here's 10 words to lead you in that way. Later on, after the Ten Commandments are given, there's a prophet named Ezekiel, and he looks ahead to a time when God's going to move people. He's going to give people his spirit so they will want to obey his commands. This is what Ezekiel says in chapter 36. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove the heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you. And look at this. I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Isn't that amazing? He's talking about Pentecost. He's talking about this beautiful New Testament, specifically reality, where we can be filled with the spirit of God and actually want to obey God. Actually, this is what I want to do. I'm going to fail sometimes, but this is what I want to do. I want to move in this direction. These 10 words are meant to do so much more, friends, than point out our sins. They're meant to guide us like a good shepherd toward the way of life. Amen? All right, one more final thought. There's this scene in Jesus' life where an expert in the law, which means he's an expert in this stuff. He's He's a Ten Commandments expert. And he's testing Jesus... And he tests Jesus in a, in a method that was common in the Jewish culture of the day, which is this, summarize the Old Testament. Summar- he didn't say Old Testament, but he says summarize the law and the prophets. How do you, supposedly brilliant teacher, put into as few words as possible the Ten Commandments and all the other laws built around the Ten Commandments? This is a common way of testing somebody's expertise. In our culture, we might say it like this. How do you explain that to a kid? And when you're examining somebody who might have a PhD in theology and they can't explain it to a kid, you're like, you don't get it, right? So here's what's happening. This guy's coming up to Jesus saying, do you get it? Can you summarize all the, what we would call the Old Testament? And Jesus says something that's brilliant. He says, I can do it in one word, essentially. It's love. It's love. How many people think about love when they think of the Old Testament? But this is not my idea. This is what Jesus says. This is actually what he says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two things is what he says. Jesus summarizes the whole Old Testament, like two-thirds of the Bible that we carry around, with love God, love people. All of what we might call religious instruction, all these rules are ultimately supporting a loving relationship with God and a loving relationship with people. This is the way of love. The Ten Commandments are the way of love. and They're the way of life. My hope, friends, is that the Christian church, especially in America, will emerge from this strange season in history with greater clarity about who we are called to be and how we are called to live. Please, can somebody show me a distinctly Christian way of living life? Like We need to recover this in our country because we're just all scrambled up at this point. Secondly, my hope is that all of us at Emmaus would grow in a way of life that is toward greater wholeness, not just for our sakes and not just for the sakes of our families, but for the sakes of others. And that by walking in freedom toward greater wholeness, that we would have something of real substance to offer other people. That we would be, in other words, living in a way of life that we could say, you can 
you can watch and 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 watch my life and see a way that is life giving. And that's a lifetime journey. That is a lifetime journey. But last thing I would say is this. Some of us are going to make a big stride in this direction over the next two months. We are. We're going to make a big stride towards understanding and living into this way of life in the next two months because we're going to dive into the Ten Commandments deep. There's five new home groups that are starting. Two got started last week. Three more are starting this week. It's actually the third section of our way of life catechism. And we're going deep into the significance of these ten words, these ten commandments. Um, We're gathering small groups. They're meeting all across Placer County. There's one every night. And there's still room for some of you to sign up. Short-term commitment. And I don't want this to feel like, was that a sermon or was that a commercial? It was a sermon. But I want this to become more than just, oh, that was one day thing. This is so, the Ten Commandments have been seen as one of a very few key parts of learning the faith. The Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments. Historically, that's how people learn what the faith is. Historically. That's how people get ready for baptism. They learn the Apostles' Creed, they learn the Lord's Prayer, and they learn the Ten Commandments. Not just as a list of rules, not just as a thing to memorize, but as a way to live. So I encourage you, as a very practical way to respond to this, to dedicate the next seven or eight weeks to gathering with a few others and leaning into this material. Let's rediscover the beauty of what has become for many of us just sort of a, a curiosity. And let's, uh, let's take steps towards the way of life. Amen? Not as a set of do's and don'ts, list of things to memorize, an outdated ethical code, but a way of life that's embraced by and fulfilled by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. We're grateful for your love for us that you have shown us a way. And I pray for grace to wed in a beautiful way this invitation towards uh, to relational intimacy with you and the structures and the laws and the quote-unquote rules and the commands that support real relationship. Lord, lead us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand up together. We're going to sing the doxology in response this morning before we pass the peace. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly the peace of Christ be with you. Take a moment and we'll come back again in just a few minutes.